I want to um, begin this morning. We're continuing our study in the book of uh, Matthew, and we're in the 17th chapter. But before that, I wanted to um, talk about a um, an old type of activity that kind of goes back, and I hope I'm not dating myself by talking about this, but back in the old days, and this is a long time ago, and many of you may recall this activity that folks used to do, and maybe you don't remember this, that's okay, but this goes back about 338 days ago, where you used to be able to go indoors into a crowded building. You could walk up to a counter to buy from someone, um, buy something from someone that wasn't behind plexiglass. You could go into a smaller room and sit in a chair that was less than six feet from another person that wasn't in your household. And you could watch a movie and doing all of these things without wearing a mask. And aside from not wearing a mask, possibly the best part about going to the movie theaters was the previews. Because even if the actual movie ended up being terrible, the previews for the next upcoming movie would make it all worth it. And I've always enjoyed watching previews because it gives you a glimpse of what's to come. And the previews get you excited about what's going to happen in that next um, action-packed blockbuster before it comes out. Now, they don't show you everything in the preview, but they give you just a glimpse of what is coming so that you're in line waiting at the next movie night um, or, or during opening night. But if you're a grandpa like me and you can't stay up past nine, then you'll wait for it to come out on DVD six months later. But all that to say, a preview gets you excited about what's to come. And this morning, we're gonna be looking at a, um, a preview of what's to come. And the goal this morning is to get each of you excited about what's to come. We are going to look at the preview that three disciples had in um, chapter 17. They had a privilege to witness the transfiguration of Christ. Now, when you see a movie preview, there's various questions that might come up like, you know, what's this movie all about? Sometimes the, the previews are very vague and you don't get a good idea of what is happening. And until maybe the very end you go, oh, okay, now I know what this movie's about. But you wanna know what the movie's about or who is the main character? What's the title of the movie called? And if you really like the preview, you wanna know when does this movie come out? Well, we'll call the title of this movie, Jesus' Second Coming. And who is the main character? Well, surprise, it's Jesus. He is the star of the film, as we'll see. And was there a prequel to this? Well, yes, we could call it Jesus' first coming. And that's the period of time that the disciples are really now living in as we speak. And in order to help us understand this passage, before we get into the passage and, and the transfiguration, I want to put ourselves back in the disciples' shoes. Try to imagine with me um, just what is going on in the disciples' minds as they are with Jesus. You know, what did they understand about Jesus? Who he was and what he was doing? In fact, if we go back a couple, just a couple of verses. So our passage is in Matthew 17, but we'll look at just a couple of verses in chapter 16 before that. And Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? 
And the disciples gave various responses of people. Some said, you know, he's John the Baptist or Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus brings back the question back to them and says, but who do you say that I am? Then we hear Peter's famous response. And he says and confesses that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was a crucial statement that God had revealed to Peter. This was a significant statement, more than just a name. It wasn't Jesus's last name. It was, he was saying Jesus is the Christ. Peter was saying that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the chosen one, deliverer that was prophesied by all the prophets. Jesus is the one that they have been waiting for. And yet, most of the people of that day, especially the religious rulers, just they failed to recognize that Jesus was the Christ. And for the disciples and other Old Testament saints who looked ahead to the coming of Christ, the first coming and the second coming of Christ, they were really indistinguishable from one another. And it was almost as if you were looking at two mountain peaks from a distance. And it would almost appear as if the mountain peaks were really one and the same. And I just want to pull up this illustration I have of this to just help you understand what disciples may be looking at. And so you have here the perspective of an Old Testament saint, an Old Testament believer, such as Isaiah or even the um, the disciples, and as they looked to the second or the coming of Christ, they thought that these mountain peaks—you have the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ—when they looked at it, it looked indistinguishable. They were one and the same, and they didn't know that between each coming, that there would be the separation of about two thousand or more years. We're still waiting for the second coming, but this valley in between, known as the Church Age, and that's. It was a mystery to them. It, it hadn't been revealed yet to anyone. Let me go back. And so looking at Old Testament prophecies, many of the passages, they, they almost seem to blur together the Christ's first coming and his second coming. For example, if you look at um, Isaiah 9-6, if you look at this passage here, try to distinguish where his first coming and his second coming um, are mentioned. If for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see that we know that Jesus Christ came to this earth and was born as a child, as a baby. And so that is his first coming. And in the very next sentence, it's the same verse even, or it's even part of the same sentence, and, and the government shall be upon his shoulders is really talking about the future. It's really talking about his second coming when, when Christ will reign in his kingdom. And so you could see the confusion or the, um, the dilemma that the disciples and the Old Testament saints had as they read about. Uh, and there's multiple other verses that really, they're almost indistinguishable to, um, to the saints um, of that time. So what happens after this? After this, um, Jesus 
then begins to tell them that he's going to suffer and he would be killed and raised the third day. And this news just was a shock. It was a blow to the disciples. And I believe that really they only heard part of what Jesus said. They, they heard that he was going to die, his suffer and die. And it didn't really quite fit into their plan and their picture of what Christ would do. Christ wasn't supposed to die. The disciples thought they were on the road to, with Jesus to Jerusalem to reign with Christ. And Jesus was talking about his road to death. And they imagined that the day that they would be sitting on his right hand and left hand, and they fought over that. Um, but Jesus then tells them to deny themselves, take up your cross and follow me. That's not the picture they had in mind. What is Jesus talking about this suffering? And this, this isn't just fitting in their, in their, uh, their minds. And really what the disciples didn't understand at that time was that the path to glory, Jesus' path to glory would begin with the path to, cross, to the cross. Before his glorification, there would be his humiliation. Christ had to, Jesus had to go to the cross before being glorified. And the disciples anticipated um, Jesus' eminent return on earth, but Jesus looked to his earthly suffering. Disciples wanted to reign in glory with him, and Jesus wanted them to follow him to the death. Before the glory, there would be shame. Before reigning, he would be rejected. And in <clears throat> all of this that Jesus is talking about to them, I'm sure that the disciples were confused and saddened. And in the midst of all this, Jesus um, said all these things. Um, he then tells them that he will come again. And that at that time, it will be in glory. And we have the very end of uh, Matthew chapter 16. Um, we have the, um, at the end of chapter 16, we have Jesus say that in 27 and 28. And we'll look at that really quickly um, before we start our passage. In chapter, or verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Jesus reassures them that he is coming back again. And when he does, he will return in all of his majesty and glory as the king of kings. He will set up his kingdom and Christ will reign. But then Jesus says just an unusual statement in verse 28. Or yeah, verse 28. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death so they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus first tells them about the kingdom coming and then says that there will be some that won't taste death. This probably confused the disciples and it has confused people, even theologians. How would some of them be alive long enough to see him coming? And we know that Jesus hasn't set up his kingdom yet. Even today, we are still waiting for this to happen. So, we also know that all of his disciples have lived and died and Christ's kingdom hasn't come yet. They didn't get to see it yet, have they? How would they not taste death? Well, this really can be easily explained in just the next events that take place in the next chapter. And we see that we have an unfortunate chapter break here that really 
leads into the transfiguration. Our passage this morning starts in chapter 17, but really 28 is Jesus telling them what's going to happen to a few of them, and the fulfillment of that happens immediately after that. And so let's take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell to their face, on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And you see that this account really fulfills the promise to the disciples in 28. There would be some who wouldn't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we see that Jesus selected just three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they got a glimpse or a preview of what Jesus would be like in his coming. They, would, they got a preview of his glory and his majesty. Now, how do we know that this is really the correct interpretation of that? Like, how do we know that this really fulfills the promise of uh, verse 28? Well, we know that three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this order of events that lead up to the transfiguration just identically. They record Jesus telling them about the suffering, about Jesus' call to take up the cross and follow him, and the promise that some wouldn't taste death. Then just a few days later, Peter, James, and John are led up onto a mountain, and they see Jesus transformed. One of the disciples, uh, John, who is present, alludes to this experience in John 1.14. He says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter, he wrote about the experience later in his book, um, in his letter in 2 Peter 1.16. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised, tape, uh, cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is re reference to this transfiguration. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, they saw with their eyes his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter affirms that they saw Jesus in the same glory he will, they, he will have when he reigns for a thousand years. And Peter, James, and John were really, what Peter is saying in, in his uh, epistle is that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw on the mountain 
was the son of man coming in his glory of his kingdom. So let's take a look at the events um, that happened on the mountain. The first verse says that now after six days, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. In Luke's gospel, we learn that they went up to the mountain to pray. Now, why were Peter, James, and John specifically chosen for this purpose? Well, it's hard to say exactly, but we do know that the, these three disciples had a special nearness to the Savior. We see them present during other special events. They were for one, eyewitnesses of his transfiguration. They, they, these three also witnessed Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. And they were also the three disciples who accompanied Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's also another important note is that why did he take three? Why not all the disciples or why not just one? Well, we find this principle really throughout the scripture that truth should be confirmed or established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And they would be eyewitnesses of this event after Jesus rose from the dead. They would go and proclaim this. And Peter wrote about it. John talked about it. And um, they were really witnesses of what happens on this mountain. And so next we have that in verse two, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Now, Jesus' appearance was just dramatically changed before their eyes. And it's, it's, it's hard to just take this and put words, um, put this into words exactly what took place here. But it says he was transfigured. And this is where we get the word metamorphosis. It's, it means that there was a physical appearance that had changed. His face began to show, shine like the sun and his clothes became bright as the whitest light you can imagine. And Mark says that his clothes were extremely shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder can whiten them. The light was probably um, blinding to look at. And it's important to note that that this light isn't being shown upon Jesus. Jesus is the source of light. The light came from within and shone outward. It's really the glory of God being revealed because up until now, Jesus' glory had been veiled in his earthly body. It had been kind of suppressed or hidden from um, because when people looked at Jesus, he looked like an ordinary man. He looked no different than anyone else. They couldn't spot him in a crowd. Um, they even, Judas had to come up and kiss Jesus when he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's, this, it's as if his veil of this earthly body was pulled back for the first time and they saw Jesus in all of his glory. They no longer saw Jesus as the lowly servant, but as the coming king, the glorious king. And this is who Jesus is. He is the glorious king. And it, as I was thinking about this, it really should make us worship and fall on our faces to adore him because of what Jesus did in order to come to this earth. Because in coming to the earth, the scripture says Jesus emptied himself of his glory. Philippians 2.6 says that um, 
that as he had already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. And in Corinthians says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus left his glorious home in heaven and humbled himself to the point of um, becoming a man um, dwelling among us. Next, we have Moses and Elijah who appear on the scene. In verses three and four, it says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This brings up an interesting question. Why did Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus? And what do you think they were talking about with Jesus? Well, we, what do we know about these two men? We know that Moses was a, a great leader. He led the nation of Israel. We also know that Moses, the law was given to Moses. And so in one sense, Moses represented the law. He represented um, the law given to the Israelites. And Elijah, he was known as one of the great, greatest prophets, full of zeal. He was a um, man who held... Uh, or protected the law, and um, he would represent all of the Old Testament prophets. So we have Moses and Elijah, who both represent the law and the prophets. And in the Gospel of Luke, we we get a um, get some more insight about what these um, two men were talking about with Jesus. In Luke nine thirty, it says that they spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about Jesus' decease or departure that was going to take place shortly. And now we know that Moses and Elijah were there as witnesses to the fact that Jesus was going to die. And if we look through all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament books, we'll see over and over again that the scriptures really point to Jesus throughout. They also point to that Jesus would also suffer and die, that Christ would suffer and die. And most people of that day just couldn't grasp with Jesus' death. It was a stumbling block to the Jews, and it was foolishness to the Gentiles. And so I believe that one of the reasons they were there is Moses and Elijah appeared to point to Jesus and remind the people or remind the disciples that Jesus was going to die. That's what he's talking about. And then we have Peter opening his mouth. And once more, Peter put his foot in his mouth again. And by saying this phrase, to make a tabernacle for the three of them, he really mistakenly put Moses and Elijah on the same level as Christ. And Mark records that, Really, Peter said this because he didn't know what to say. They were afraid. And 
Luke says that even Peter said this as they were parting from him on the way out, they were disappearing from the scene. They had finished their role appointed to Jesus and Peter's trying to bring them back. He was missing the point, but Peter had a hard time with understanding Jesus dying. Even before this, Jesus would say that he is going to suffer and die. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, and rebukes him and says, Lord, this can't happen to you. But Peter didn't understand that for there to be salvation, there must be a savior. For there to be, for there to be forgiveness of sins, Jesus had to die and rise again. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, there would be no savior. There would be no need for a kingdom. So even after the events of the cross, people still didn't understand quite what was happening. Remember the two men that were on the road to Emmaus with Jesus. Jesus saw that they were saddened from the events that took place. And Jesus says to them, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all in the scripture, the things concerning him. So throughout the scripture, we have appointing to Christ and Moses and Elijah were there for that. Now, as Peter was saying this thing, he's cut off in a sense and interrupted. And what happens is that a bright cloud just overshadows them. And God, the father comes in a bright cloud, corrects Peter and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. So as a third and final witness, we have the two witnesses of uh, Elijah and Moses witnessing Jesus, um, witnessing to the fact that Jesus would die. And we have God the Father placing proper focus back on Jesus. He tells the disciples to listen to him, hear what he has to say about his suffering and death. Now we can easily criticize and sit, listen, or listen to this and criticize Peter for his actions and say how foolish he was. But how often are we like Peter, wanting to act first without thinking, speaking without thinking of what we're saying? How often do we need to stop and listen to Jesus' voice, to hear him instead of telling him the way things, the way things that are going to happen? We need to stop and listen. And we can do this by hearing and heeding his word. We find that we can hear his voice in his word. And we should be like Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus, hearing what he has to say to us. Next, we have the disciples. They heard it. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The three disciples, they witnessed an incredible sight, seeing the Lord Jesus in his coming glory, seeing Moses and Eliza uh, appearing as witnesses to his death and God the Father appearing in a bright cloud. It's, it's no wonder that they were in awe and terrified. But then Jesus comes and with a gentle touch comforts them and all they have left is Jesus. Jesus only. He was the main focus of the whole event. Everything pointed to him. 
It was to show him that he was the one that on one hand, he is the Christ who will suffer and die. But on the other hand, he, there will be a coming day when Jesus will come back and reign as glorious king. As a glorious king. It's all true. They can count on him returning because of what they saw. They got a glimpse of what it will be like. And now they come down from the mountain. In verse 9, it says, as they come down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Why didn't Jesus want them telling anybody about what they saw? Isn't the point of everything, you know, aren't we supposed to be going around and telling the, the good news and just going out and telling everybody these things? Why did they have to wait until after he has risen? Well, Jesus didn't want, um, the people really didn't want Jesus. They didn't want Jesus for what he was there for. They didn't want Jesus as the savior from their sin. They were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for somebody who would save them from the, the Roman oppression that they were facing. And so if they heard about this transfiguration experience, they would no doubt take him by force and make him their political, political Messiah or king. Um, but they would have done it for all the wrong reasons. What they really needed was to be free from their sins. Jesus didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to conquer sin and death. And finally, even at the end, Jesus promises and assures them again that I will rise from the dead. That will happen. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Again, I'm going to rise from the dead. And in, in another gospel, that they, they were contemplating this and, and thinking about this, this phrase that Jesus says about rising from the dead. And they come up with a question to Jesus um, in verses 10. Um, and Jesus answers the following. He says, and his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then his disciples understood that he, was, he spoke, to them about, spoke to them of John the Baptist. So as they head down the mountain, the disciples asked Jesus a question. Well, if you are the Messiah, if, you were, if you're going to die and you're going to be raised up again, then, and you are, you are this Messiah who you say you are, then the scribes think that Elijah must come first. And if Elijah must come first, where, where is he? Has, has he come yet? We haven't seen him. And why did the scribes say this? Well, the scribes were actually right um, because they were referencing a prophecy back in the last book of the Bible, the uh, last book of the Old Testament in Malachi um, chapter 4 verses five and six, and I'll read it for you. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with the curse. Now, 
even to this day, there is a tradition, um, a Jewish tradition at the Passover where they will leave a seat empty and a cup of wine poured for Elijah the prophet, should he eventually show up at the feast. Jesus confirms to them that Elijah is coming first. So Elijah will come before um, Jesus coming. But then he says something confusing. He says, well, Elijah has already come. As we read on, we realize that what he's talking about is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist wasn't actually Elijah personally, but John was the forerunner to the Messiah. He came before Jesus to prepare the hearts of men for Jesus. He called the people to repent of their sins. And if you look at Elijah's ministry and John's ministry, they were really, really similar. There's a lot of um, similarities in that. And in Luke, the angel spoke to Zacharias and said that, that he will, um, speaking of um, John the Baptist, will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children. And the sad thing is that um, they didn't receive him. John's message was rejected. And ultimately what they did to John was they threw him into prison and they beheaded him. They killed him. And so as Jesus' messenger, John suffered and died. And this was really going to be a foretaste of what was going to happen to uh, Jesus. If they reject the forerunner, then they'll reject Jesus as king as well. And the scribes completely missed the fact that Elijah was already there in their midst. Elijah had already come, and they missed it. If they had recognized John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah, I believe that they would have already they would have also recognized who Jesus was. But because they didn't recognize John, they also didn't recognize Jesus. And as we look at that promise, it's easy, it's reasonable to say that before Jesus' second coming, before he sets up his earthly kingdom, that there will be a prophet that arises and comes before to prepare the children of Israel for the coming king. And it's possible that it will be Elijah himself, or it's possible another prophet in the same spirit of Elijah. Now, as we come to the end of this passage, we want to look at what we can take home from this passage. And at the beginning of my sermon, I said that there were three disciples who would get a, a movie preview. And this preview was about, what was it about? Well, they got front row seats the second coming of Christ. When will this come out? When will this movie come out? Well, it's, it's coming soon. The release date is imminent. It's unknown, but it is coming soon. What the disciples saw was real, and Jesus is coming back. And when he does come back, he will come back in power and glory. We will have, we have an extraordinary thing to look forward to, to be excited about because um, we'll be believers today. We'll be a part of this. And I want to look back at um, one more thing on the trans, uh, transfiguration scene. As we look at the scene again of the transfiguration, we have um, Moses and Elijah standing there on the mountain with Jesus. And then Jesus' glory is put on display. And an interesting question about Moses and Elijah are where Today, where are their bodies? Well, we know that Moses died 
120 years ago or at 120 years old, but there is still a mystery about where his grave was. The Bible is clear that Moses did die, but it says that the Lord buried him. But we don't know where his gravesite is. We don't know where his body has been um, buried. And Elijah, he, he had another experience. He didn't experience death. We know that Elijah, he was translated up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah never died. And so at the second coming of Christ, we have Moses, who represents believers who have died and will be raised up from the dead. And Elijah represents believers who will be translated to heaven. And now as Old Testament believers, from their vantage point, um, we also look as um, as believers today, we have another vantage point that we look at. A believer to living today, <clears throat> we know that the second coming has two separate phases. First, all believers... Um, All believers from Pentecost until the present day will be part of the phase one. They'll be raptured. And then we know that the church, that the church will be caught up in the air with Christ and be with the Lord forever. We know this is because it's found in uh, 1 Thessalonians. It says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who sleep. For the Lord will, himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then, those, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And after the church is raptured, there's about a period of seven years that we know as the tribulation. And as we look at the two comings, they almost look indistinguishable in the valley that's in between. Because when Jesus talks about his second coming, it really, um, it, it's, it's hard to distinguish sometimes which one he's talking about, which phase he's talking about. But we know that after the tribulation, that um, and the church will not be a part of that. But um, after this period of time, Christ will then come again to the earth with his angels and with the church. We will, re we will return with Christ at his second coming to the earth. And then Christ will then set up his kingdom on earth and he will reign for a thousand years. What does Jesus' millennium look like? Well, his, his millennial reign will be a period of time like no other. We know that Christ will reign as king of the world. The Bible says that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Won't it be wonderful to know that there won't be any elections? There won't be any fighting over politics. We'll know that Christ is the king. He is the one that will be reigned. Reigning. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. We also know that the millennial reign, the world will experience a peace like never seen before. There will be no wars. 
He says, uh, the Bible says, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war. They shall neither shall they learn war anymore. It's interesting that the the weapons that we use will be turned into agricultural um, tools. Warfare will be replaced with agriculture. It will be a time of peace. Even creation will be much much different. Creation is still under the curse, and right now it, it groans and longs to be freed from this curse. And um, Romans, it says that for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation will be a much, much different place. Even nature and the, um, the animals of God's creation will be um, completely different. The Bible speaks of um, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the, um, the leopard with the goat. The nursing child shall play with, by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in a viper's den, and they won't be harmed. Just imagine if you could um, take your kid and put him in a viper's den and be okay. And the list can go on and on about what the future kingdom will look like. You could spend just tons of time looking at this. It will be a great and wonderful time to look forward to. The disciples had a mountaintop experience. It would have been incredible to see, to be in their shoes and experience Jesus transfigured before our eyes. They witnessed something just incredible, but it's something that eventually all believers, all of us, we will see in a coming day. One day our faith will be made sight. We will see Jesus in all of his glory and splendor. And we long for that day. We can try our best to imagine what these three disciples experienced, but our minds will never just come close. But when we think of, about Jesus coming in the future kingdom that we will be a part of, it's easy to have our heads in the clouds. Not that it's wrong to think about these things or look forward to his coming. We should long for it. We should look for it and for that hope. But the disciples, they did end up coming down from the mountain. They still lived on earth. And that unique experience wouldn't be there forever. And as they came down the mountain, they came down to a world that is going to reject Jesus as the king. They will put him to death. And we can have experiences like this. We can go to a conference like Yosemite and hear messages and great preachers. We can listen to the coming, to the, the, the future and the glory that we'll soon get to experience when we come down from the mountain and face our present circumstances, when we come down and realize that we're, we're living in a lost and dying world that rejects Jesus as king. He's the king, and one day he will reign over the earth. But until then, we are, we are called to be his witness to the world and to proclaim the gospel. We must tell others that Jesus is coming again. We must tell others and warn them about the coming judgment. Are you ready for the return of the king? Jesus came the first time to die on the cross for your sins. He rose again to conquer sin and death. Are you going to be a part of his kingdom? 
Have you trusted in Jesus as the sa- your Lord and Savior? And what's wonderful is that when you trust in him alone as Savior, you are then part of his church. And then we are also part of his kingdom. More than that, the Bible says that we are saints. He says that he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. We are not only part of his kingdom, but we will also reign with him. I had another verse, but I can't seem to find it. But we'll just go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful uh, passage that reveals the glory, reveals your glory, reveals who you are, and the promise that you've given us that you are coming again. We thank you for your first coming to this earth to humble yourself and to go to the cross um, to die for our sins. We thank you for the hope that we have as you've been, um, that you've risen from the dead and that you are in heaven and coming back again, Lord, to set up your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we uh, would look forward to that day and we would set our hearts on telling others about um, your kingdom and how they can be a part of it, Lord. We just pray that we would have, um, we would listen to you. We would hear your voice and uh, follow after you. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.